Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about The Hunt for Red October, the 1990 film directed by John McTiernan, written by Larry Ferguson, Donald E. Stewart, based on the novel by Tom Clancy. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Dermott. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. So I am super excited to be talking about The Hunt for Red October, which, if people remember, was number four on my top films of the 90s list. Uh, it's just such a fun, good movie. Like, it's just like, it's just a movie. It's one of those movies that's a movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's a movie. It and <laughs> it's like... I love a good spy thriller. It's like epic. It has all these like cool characters. All the pieces like come together and connect. Uh, hard to follow when you're like eight or nine or whatever the hell age I was when I first saw it. Like I definitely didn't understand what was happening, um, but I loved it. And now I understand and I still love it. This also spawned for me a brief period of being really into submarine things. There was a video game called silent running i believe that came with our ibm pc that we got in like 1994 or 5 or something and it was this video game where it's like a movie like it's video of actual people and it's basically the plot of the hunt for red october except you could choose like oh should they go tell the skipper or should they do this other thing and then so it was like a choose your own adventure except I got stuck and was never able to pass the first disc. And I'm still really stressed about that. <laughs> this is a tangent. I don't know how we got here. But basically, I love this movie. It's really fun. Revisiting it as an adult made me appreciate all the story stuff that it's doing well, the screenplay stuff. I think we should have a long conversation about setting and constraints in setting. And as we talked about in Die Hard a little bit, also directed by John McTiernan, the location of your action can inform so much of it and you know, create so much of the drama. And that's absolutely the case with these. Um, Trisha, I know you are also a submarine fan, more so than I even. Tell me about The Hunt for Red October. Yeah, uh, so this definitely launched my love of submarine movies. And I have seen a lot of them. I'm not going to say I've seen all of them, although I'm on a quest to see all of them. Uh, <laughs> and I've seen quite a few. And I think this is just about the second best submarine movie that I've seen. Obviously, the best submarine movie in the whole world ever is Das Boot. And it's extraordinary. So if you love submarine movies and you like this movie, uh, Das Boot is it's four hours long and it's like super worth it and amazing. Um, wow. So strong recommend on that. But uh, Hunt for Red October is really, really good. It just checks all the like submarine movie boxes, like the containment piece that you're talking about. Um, it's got sort of like the hierarchy, like military, you know, maneuvering of like who's in charge of what. And um, it's got the honor and like, you know, like country loyalty sort of questions baked in there and that you want from any political thriller. Right. And then it, it has all the twists and turns and lots of moving parts. And so the best action sequences are when there's like three different submarines in the water and like who's doing what. And um, yeah, it, it plays with all of that stuff. So it's, uh, it's just, as you're pointing out, like, I don't know, 
if it's like a deeply moving character drama, I feel like it certainly isn't. It has enough going on that it feels like it's about something kind of, but ultimately it's just like, there's a movie. Here's a movie for you. Um, and it, if you're into any one of the things that I mentioned, this should do it for you. So I, I do want to say though, watching it this time, I still love it with all my little heart. But the goofy aspects of it, and there are some, mm. especially because it's not 1990 anymore, <laughs> and not just the special effects that don't hold up, because they don't. Uh, but beyond that, there are just some goofy things that, that go on in this movie um, that strain credulity, I'm going to say. Uh, those stood out to me a little more, but most submarine movies have a goofy thing or two, and uh, this probably... I'm so sorry. They're not usually super grounded. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, and, and this one is not all the way grounded either. But overall, in terms of like on a goofy scale against many other much, much goofier submarine movies, this one manages to pretty much keep it down. And it's pretty good in that respect. Yeah, it's probably just because I saw it as a child, but like the goofy things like don't like I still can't pick them up. Like only this time was I like really feeling Have like, you never oh, yeah, heard like, do Sean... you not hear Sean Connery speaking? No. <laughs> well, and I think this is a big so we've talked before yeah. on the podcast about how I don't have like an ear for accents or like think that they really matter. And it might be because of like this movie mm. where just like right. child brain was like, sure, Sean Connery is like from the Soviet Union. Okay. Like, if you're a child, you don't know the difference. And so, like, not until watching it as an adult, like, recently was I like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> but I'm fine with it. But so, Alex, you saw this for, like, the very first time. So yeah. coming at it from that perspective, what did you what did you make of all of this? Yeah, it's really interesting, Michael, hearing your experience with it, because it does feel like I, I don't know what adult Michael would think of this movie for the first time because it feels very 80s huh. to me. It feels very late 80s, huh. early 90s, like really heightened dialogue at times, really 90s, like banter. Like, I mean, it's kind of Aaron Sorkinish in some ways, which I know you do appreciate, but I enjoyed it. And I and I agree that it, it does all the submarine movies things really well. And, and, and the whole finale was fantastic and all the moving pieces and, and yeah, there's three subs at play. Oh my God, there's so much going on. Um, the kind of heisty aspect of the ending with, you know, reveals and, oh, this is part of the mm -hmm. plan. All that was really satisfying. For me, the hurdle was like kind of the first half of the movie, just trying to be like, no, it's okay. This is made in 1990. These are 90s things that are like kind of grating <laughs> on you now, but like it was, this was really cool at the time. And this was like normal at the time. And I, it was, it was difficult for me to get into the movie for a while because just, you know, some of the early conversations with Jack Ryan and, you know, the other military brass, I was just like, like this is, it was like Aaron Sorkin, but like ratcheted up to more annoying, like for me. <laughs> um, so it was, so I, I was, it was hard for me to like get into the characters. It's like, oh, I'm another guy guy who's here to like do this kind of banter at you. And it's just like, oh, there's just so much of this. Take me back to the Russians. The Russians are at least like normal. They're just like people talking to each other. But these like military dudes are trying to so like they're trying to so hard to be cool in this movie way. Anyway, that's my little rant. I got that out of the way. But once the movie got into the you know real uh, tension of the story, once you got, you know, Alec Baldwin to the sub, 
I was really into it. Um, but but it was but it's interesting to hear, Michael, your experience of just like this movie is amazing and perfect. And you don't see any datedness because um, I feel like Michael Tucker right now with a totally fresh brain would see the datedness mm. and would mm-hmm. bump on it. Um, so it's a very interesting experiment that we're running here. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is interesting. I'm going to think about this more while Brian tells us about his thoughts on Hunt for Red. Yeah, I'll, I'll respond to that while also talking about my thoughts, which are just I I saw this movie a long time ago and liked it a lot, but have not seen it in a very long time. So it was really a blast to revisit it. And I, I didn't remember any of the, you know, specifics of it for the most part. So that was it was just a blast. But yeah, it sort of feels like this. uh it's still an 80s movie he, like you have the text coming on screen with the actual typey sounds and stuff uh-huh. you know? yeah. and the, and then you've got especially the crew of the dallas is like this like you know uh everyone's got their little character thing you know like this is the guy who likes all about music right and it's kind of that like aliens type uh you know crew and his um two movies before this was predator uh mctiernan and um but then at the same time, you know, Trisha, you talked about how the 90s into the early aughts was like the the time of the epic. Um, and that was really true in more towards the early aughts. But that kind of started in the 90s with like the Dances with Wolves and a lot of uh, these kinds of movies and getting into Braveheart. And this kind of feels like a, a meeting of those two things, right? It kind of has this 80s-ness to it. And and some of the plot things feel a little like, oh, we kind of couldn't get away with that these days, but we could then. And then some of it feels like this is like a sweeping epic like the, some of those opening shots which are all you know the the I, I can't even tell if it's all practical some of the time some of the times it's very clear like at the very ending obviously but some of that that opening is just like so bad <laughs> so I'm like oh wow this feels like such an epic movie um so yeah it's really interesting where it falls kind of be, in that timeline of the two um and uh and yeah I'm excited to get into it with you guys Yeah, this is the first of the, like, best-selling political thrillers Mm -hmm. that they, that we've gotten to talk about, but they just made so many of them. They just made them by the dozen in the 90s. Like, (laughs) anything that was like, yeah, Tom Clancy, John Grisham, like, you know, more of a legal thriller there, but like, they just made them and made them and made them, and they cast the A-list movie stars, because this was like, peak, you know, like, George Clooney, Nicole Kidman, Julia Roberts, like, put everybody in one of these, you know, and like, I love most of those movies. Like, I love them the way that I love James Bond movies, right? Which is just like, they're kind of just actiony, thrillery things. Um, And like, you know, she's a smart analyst who works for the whatever. And he's like former military and he was whatever. I, great. They got to get a <laughs> nuclear bomb. Yes, I'm here for it. Like, <laughs> and And they just... This is the first one that we're getting to talk about. And I think it is one of the best examples because it feels weightier than that. It's what you're talking about, Brian. It feels like it is a little more epic. Like it is actually more about something beyond like, are they going to get the terrorists in time? And and I love the other Jack Ryan movies, but but all three of those other Jack Ryan movies um, do feel a little bit less heavy than this like Mm -hmm. this i think has the sort of not just because it's about an enormous heavy submarine underwater um but it it does also have this sort of like is it gonna is the cold war gonna you know explode or whatever right Um, the danger is present and clear yeah (laughs) 
No one's in the room with Jack Ryan joke. Sorry, no more, no more Patriot games from for me. And then the sum of all fears is the name of the other one. No one talks about the Chris Pine one because no one cares. Oh wow! The manifestation of everything yeah yeah yep. it really was the sum of all fears that <laughs> making too many of these um yeah it's really weird because i i don't think i've i know i've seen at least a couple of the other jack ryan movies but not since i was like a little mm. kid and didn't get it and didn't understand that wait what that's supposed to be alec baldwin from that movie that i loved like this doesn't make any sense this is a totally different thing um and yeah my memory of them is that they did feel like more like actiony movies that are there for like popcorn whereas this does feel there's certainly actiony moments and thriller moments but it's also like jack ryan is kind of like an academic and he's a nerd mm -hmm. and i think that's maybe why i connect with him in a way that i don't like die hard where it's like i'm just a cop I'm trying to make my way through the world whereas like jack ryan is like i'm an analyst i should have sent a memo i don't like it when there's turbulence and i'm like yes I identify with you. Character. Hang on, neither mm -hmm. does John so McClane. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't look fine. <laughs> John McTiernan, he's got this uh, go-to character flaw. I'm going to talk about all the ways in which this movie is diehard a little later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I think there's also just like, there's so much storytelling care happening in every scene. Like every, even when it's an exposition scene of Jack Ryan's got to go talk to the guy who knows the thing about the caterpillar doors. Mm -hmm. Like it's shot in a way where like there's a progression and uh, yeah, there's just the cinematography is nice. There's like, there's drama in every mm -hmm. scene and there's turning points in every scene. Uh, yeah. And, and maybe cause I'm a nerd, I, I get into like the details of like, Oh, that's so cool. There. What if there was a technology where they couldn't hear a submarine and like all that stuff I think is really fun. And I think, uh, like, I think you brought up earlier, Brian, and this is a point that Trisha, you've brought up a ton of times, is that in an action movie, like Die Hard, like we talked about for there, have all your characters have these memorable things about them. And so I was really paying attention to that this time as all the characters were introduced, everybody had a thing, right? Like the sonar guy, they tell the story about how he used a submarine for, to play his music and like, very memorable story. Okay, we know you're the guy with the music thing. Um, and I, I just really appreciated that. And then while they were doing it, they were also setting up exposition in a pretty organic way. Like when Jack Ryan goes to meet Darth Vader, because that's what it was for child <laughs> yeah. me. Like, right. Well, especially that first um, shot of the Dallas is like the Star Wars opening shot where you just, it just keeps true. going and keeps going. <laughs> right. Um, but uh what was he saying totally lost my thought he goes, to meet, goes to meet darth vader right for the first time. what's his name james, james, earl, jones. james earl jones thank you jesus <laughs> it just like flew out of my head so yeah so jack ryan is there talking to james earl jones and uh it, it, james earl jones says something about like you know how's your wife or how's your leg or like all these like offhanded comments that point to some kind of shared history. Mm -hmm. Some are mo more overt than others. Some are like very like, you know, subtle, but do a lot of work to be like, oh, okay, these people have like a history together. And I'm kind of understanding their relationship in a way that makes me remember everything and then be invested in it at the same time. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was paying attention to that scene too. And James Earl Jones's character 
like guesses the age of his daughter way off. And it's really interesting because like he knows the girl's name. He's like, oh, how is she? Last time I saw her, she was what? I think three or like, so she must be three now. And then Jack Ryan's like, no, she's a very precocious five. And that exchange in itself tells us so much about the exact proximity of the relationship of these two. It's like, they do like each other. They do know each other personally outside of work a little bit or enough. So there is some like basis of trust there, but it's not like they're on the phone every week. There is also this like exact amount of distance and you know how consequential that becomes is like a little bit iffy, but it just does a lot of like really fast expository work in the way that you're talking about, Michael, where it sketches in those details. And it's like, okay, I got it. I know who this guy is. He likes Jack enough. They know each other. Um, He's going to give Jack, you know, the benefit of the doubt or like give him some opportunities, whatever it is. Like this is an ally, but he also isn't the kind of person who would like stick his neck all the way out probably for Jack or, you know, whatever it is. He probably wouldn't you know, he's not his best friend kind of thing. And so it's that kind of dialogue work um, that is, this movie does really well in the first act, I was noticing especially. It's the same thing when he goes to see the Caterpillar door guy whose like leg is busted now. He's like a former captain, you know, kind of thing. And that scene too is just laden with these like little details. Um, It's great. There's, yeah, I think somebody asks, either Jack or Jack asks somebody, how's your back? And I thought that was like the most, like the most efficient one of those mm-hmm. of like, the, there's a certain relationship that you would have with someone that you would say, how's your back? Where you know that they were injured or have an ongoing injury, but don't know the current status of it. Right. It's just like very quickly. Hey, it's been three months since you fell off that horse. Uh, how's your back doing? <laughs> it's sort of like exactly. bad exposition. Right. Also, mm-hmm. it's funny yeah. uh, with James Earl Jones because he... Uh, speaking of James Bond, I just had to throw this in. Um, it's kind of doing the James Bond thing where James Earl Jones plays Greer in the Harrison Ford movies as well. Right. So it's the mm. weird sort of thing oh. where it's like, it's like, oh, we're kind of trying to do a shared universe thing, but the main actor is different, but it's fine. Um, yeah, they have the uh, same relationship. Right. And and then just the the, the character design of, of Jack Ryan is so interesting. Sorry, a little left turn, but... Um, it's such a on paper, it's such a like, oh, he's an analyst who like shouldn't be in the field and then ends up in the field. You're like, that sounds super interesting. But then you don't really think about that when you think about these movies. You don't really remember that. And part of that is the casting of like Alec Baldwin as this like, you know, 32 year old Alec Baldwin as the nerdy kid who like has no business <laughs> being um, and like the kid. Um, and, and then Harrison Ford, obviously, like action hero from the 70s and 80s and that's that's actually why i really like john krasinski as jack ryan in the the new amazon show new the the current amazon show um is because like you're like oh i don't really buy him as an action hero it's like well that's the point like that's that's what you're supposed to feel about this character and it's because it's not something i remember about these movies but then when re-watching this it's so clear that there's there's so many scenes of like wait I'm just an analyst I can't go there well you're gonna trust this guy he's just an, an analyst like they they do lean into it a bunch but it doesn't feel like it's again it's not like they're putting him in a, a you know a nerdy like glasses with a tape on the frame you know what I mean it's not like yeah, that's yeah, not what yeah. this movie is supposed to be obviously or this entire series by Tom Clancy but it's uh it's just an interesting character design that 
sort of different movies work with in different ways, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because I was feeling that same tension where the movie was telling me this guy is doesn't belong here. He should be in an office or at a computer or something or a professor. Uh, and yet Alec Baldwin is so driven in this movie. And you know, he's the mm. one demanding to go in the choppiest helicopter ride ever and like jump, go into the freezing ocean where you could die in four minutes. And kind of after that scene's over, he's like, hey, guys, I'm here. You know, yeah. so it, it's interesting how he's he's both, you know, the stakes are raised by raising the point that he's afraid of flying and he shouldn't be here and this isn't his job. And yet the way Alec Baldwin plays him, a lot of these action scenes, he does have a confidence and kind of a bravado and like a, I'm just going to do it kind of a spirit to him. So it's an interesting character. Maybe that is part of the novel character as well. This guy who both doesn't belong here, but also is like the most courageous and the most gutsy of, of the bunch. But but I I found myself trying to figure out yeah where where is he on that spectrum because he kind of plays it both ways. Well, the work the movie has to do in that um, I don't know it's like the briefing scene right where he's in there with mm. like the Joint Chiefs and on all those guys. Um, the movie has to sell us on his like basically Jack Ryan's fascination um, with Sean Connery's character whose name is. I'm so sorry. What is his name? Ramius. Ramius, thank you. Um, his fascination with Ramius and like almost love of this guy or like it, it definitely needs to be admiration, right? Um, and so because that's the thing that's driving him to do all the things that you're talking about, Alex. It's like he has, to, we have to buy that he believes in Ramius essentially. Um, and it's not just that he trusts his own instincts, Although I think that that's a really interesting aspect of the character where he's like, well, it seems this way to me and it's logical. So that is right. And he like never, you know, he's willing to stake his life on it. He's willing to stake his reputation on it. Everything. He'll he'll double down everything on his instincts. Um, but his instincts are based on his knowledge of this person. And so I think that that those few lines where he talks about like he's a legend in the submarine community. I actually met him once and um, his wife just died, you know, and then I love that he immediately is like, Oh, I met him. Have you ever met him general? Mm. Um, <laughs> I met him by the way. <laughs> I'm an expert. Yeah. Well, it yeah. does. It does do that work. Um, I think it, I think it actually could afford to do the work a little more, um, you know, it's depending on not a lot of dialogue and a lot of Alec Baldwin's performance, um, to carry that idea that he's willing to like go to great lengths and know, or maybe die and risk a war, um, because he <laughs> believes in this person that he met one time, but like wrote a report on, um, but I do think it is in the text, right. And like, it's something that we at least can reference back to that scene where, you know, he's sitting there like, He's like, it's the 23rd. And then he's like, oh, he's, he starts laughing, right? When he realizes that he thinks he's going to defect. So it, that little, those little moments in that briefing scene are something that we can kind of like keep in our minds about Jack Ryan and about his, you know, his, his, in his mind relationship with Ramius and what he believes about Ramius to be true. And yeah, regardless of if, like you're saying, it, it's communicated strongly enough, like how much he believes in this guy. 
uh, we know, I mean, we understand pretty early on that he's right about Ramius sure. and that everybody else is wrong. And similar to kind of radar guy mm-hmm. on the Dallas, you know, when when you've got this underdog kind of expert who has figured something out and he has to prove it to his superiors, we're mm-hmm. always like a thousand percent on that character's side. And I think it's, you know, I actually I love the scene where he proves to you know, the captain of the Dallas the you know his kind of deduction of the path of the ship based off of whatever the the radar sciencey <laughs> stuff um and, and those are always really satisfying scenes because you, you you know they're right we have privileged right. information as the audience and you've always got the superiors doubting these experts and it's it it always works we're always on their side and we're always so satisfied when they finally convince the higher ups uh you know through their smarts, through their kind of undeniable deductions they've made. Yeah. And occasionally getting lucky and essentially like flipping a coin and saying, it's a crazy Ivan to the left instead of the right. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and something that I definitely didn't pick up on in early viewings and kind of only more recently uh, have been able to track is that also in the background, they are showing how this conflict is escalating and might inadvertently lead to a war no matter what and i think that's especially the case when jack is on the aircraft carrier and you know the plane is like coming in and kind of does like a crash landing and explodes essentially like i never tracked that that was directly related to you know uh i think it's like they're flying and they clip another you know soviet union fighter and like they, one of them almost shot down the other one, which could have started a war. So I feel like that plus his like obsession is kind of pushing him of like, if we don't solve this soon, something really bad could happen. There's all these submarines and ships all, you know, in this tiny area ready to destroy something that could go bad south. So I feel like there there is also that that's always pushing and adding pressure. It's just not always super easy to track because sometimes it's a little bit in the background. It takes a lot of effort to move a submarine across the ocean. But you know what's easy to move across the ocean? Massive files using Massive. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer huge amounts of data, even submarine-sized files, to anyone in the world over the cloud. With Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send, and Massive has 150 servers worldwide which means whoever you're sending the file to will be able to download it at a maximum unthrottled speed. Transfers are encrypted, so no one but the sender and recipient can access the files, and sending files with Massive is super simple. You don't need a subscription to sign up or a complicated IT setup. Just pay as you go at 25 cents per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond the screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free toward your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. I think it's it's also really interesting that the the main obstacle in this story, and this is where we can kind of get into like, submarines and the constraints and how that becomes the engine of the story but essentially it's a story about communication where like 
It's just an inability to tell the information you want to the person that you want when you want and only to them, right? Like Marco Ramius wants to defect. He needs to tell that to the Americans without any of his crew people knowing that. And Alec Baldwin, Jack Ryan knows this and is trying to like, they're just trying to find a way to communicate. But because of the mechanics of the subs and, you know, all the geopolitical tensions and the way, you know, the hierarchy works and stuff, you there were just so many obstacles in the way of that. And so it's basically just both of them, but mostly Alec Baldwin <laughs> being driven to try to find a way to just like communicate and be able to say this thing, but it becomes this crazy maze of how's he going to get the people off? And like, we have to find a way to trick them into believing that it's this and it's that, but like, we got to talk to the Dows. Well, they're underneath the water. They only come up every seven hours. And so, so like all these moving parts makes it this like really compelling journey for him to have to forge through. Yeah, there's I want it I want Trisha's monologue on containment here after I'm done. But like you have two um you, you have not just everything you're saying, Michael, which is the the lack of communication, the inability to get to each other or speak to each other, but then it's also obviously the inability to leave where you are, right? Which that's the the main right. point of containment, whether it's alien or, you know, the the crew of the Red October. I forgot the name of the submarine for a second. Um, <laughs> um who who once they find out, you know, once Ramius tells them everything, it's like, well, you can't get out, right? Like other movies, you'd be like, well, I'm I'm out. And it's like, nope, it's too late. We're we're here. And then you add to the mix, like these submarines are also murder machines right like they they are armed it's not just people are in random boats somewhere it's like no no they are boat they're in these boats with torpedoes you can't get out and everything rests on people being able to as you were saying communicate to each other one thing or another um so it just yeah all adds together to make this like really really tense basically stage play Right. you know, yeah. like where it's just people talking, it's just people in rooms talking for a lot of the time, um, because even the action is basically people reacting to a CG <laughs> shot right. that we see, basically, which we don't even need to see to understand the context. Right. Of what happened. Well, and the other interesting thing about sub movies in particular is the lack of sight. You know, there, there's no mm. there's no way to just look outside the ship and see what's going on out there. You don't know if you're being followed, if they're silent uh, or uh, if if somebody's coming from a certain direction at you unless you can hear it or there's some other way of detecting their presence. Uh, it's for, for all accounts, you're, you're blind. Um, and I think it's really interesting how much they play with the dynamics of not being able to see in in this sub movie but all sub movies and and i i think there's it's so much fun to watch the other uh instruments that have to be used to navigate and to to know the timing of things and you know the all the kind of like naval trickery that uh ramius pulls off uh it's 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 a different type of tension when you're just in a room you have no idea what's happening outside besides what your instruments are telling you or your uh, navigator is telling you. And you have to make these calls based off of no visual information whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really interesting, I can't think of any other vessel in which that's the case. Even like spaceships, you know, in Star Trek, yeah. they have view screens and they can see outside, but, but not so with subs. Yeah. What containment gets you 
as a device, if you're, if you use it effectively, is it gets you the tension of like time and things that take a long time. And so if you are thinking about a movie like Die Hard, which is a, a very contained thriller, um, and then it's, it's really about like, you know, that's like sort of a hostage negotiation movie and, and all kind of like, you know, bank robbery movies or like hostage negotiation movies are about containment, but there's, there's the physical element of containment. There's also the time element. And so the nice thing about a movie, um, is that it, a movie only is a couple of hours long. And so if you're doing the containment piece in terms of space really well, then you're just buying yourself all the time you need to do the character work, to do the tension, um, to ratchet up the stakes, to add more complications within the contained zone or whatever it is. Um, especially if, you know, you can change the rules at little key points here and there where it's like, okay, we're, we're still essentially contained, but there's a new person in the mix or like someone's loyalty has shifted, right? There's a saboteur in this case, something like that. Um, and same thing with Die Hard, right? The the actual physical rules don't change. Everyone is still trapped in the building, but there are these, the stakes then become about like, okay, we're ratcheting up like how many people has John McClane killed or, or what equipment has he stolen from them, et cetera. And so containment is useful as a screenwriting tool because it buys you time to do other things. When the containment piece is already done, then you don't have to worry about doing that anymore as a screenwriter. That work is done. And then you can focus on using your time the most effective way possible to create the most tension. And that's where submarine movies are masterful because any movie where we talked about with Die Hard, if it's a skyscraper and the bottom floor is held by the terrorists, you, you just can't go outside. The containment work is done. Mm. <laughs> There's no window to go out. There are no other doors. You can't go outside. The end, it's contained. Submarine movies are like that, only more so. You can't go outside. It's water. You die. There's no way out. Yeah. Space movies, you know, are exactly the same way. And that doesn't need explaining. It's self-explanatory. So it's a really great setting. It's a good shortcut for containment to just pick somewhere where the containment work is basically already done. And then you don't have your, to spend your time as a screenwriter plugging up holes in the, the like spatial whatever um, to try to keep your characters in there. You can just keep them in there in the way that you're talking about, Brian, and in sort of a stage play-ish kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of Die Hard, um, I first I just kept thinking about Die Hard while watching this movie. It's like you have, you know, you got the, the turbulence thing on the plane, the sort of character defining moment. Um, and then Die Hard, the, the difference is Die Hard. You've got Alan Rickman going, you know, looks like we've got ourselves a cowboy and you cut to Bruce Willis, ball badass, right? And this is, oh, we might have a buckaroo. And then you cut to, you know, Alec Baldwin <laughs> on the plane, on the, on the helicopter, like really nervous. Um, and then he's crawling through the vent, talking to himself, like, yeah, how'd you get into this mess? Like, right, same thing. <laughs> and, but then I was like, you know what this is? Because Jack Ryan is sort of an analyst, like, you know, desk jockey, but also kind of an action hero. It's basically Die Hard if John McClane and Reginald Vell Johnson were the same character because he has like he's got the hunch about the guy. Like, I know who he is. I know this guy. Believe me, I, I can tell what he's up to. Trust me. And then, you know, I'm used to being behind the desk, but I got to get in, in the fray now. And then the end is him like having to fire a gun, which is not something that he normally does to like stop. 
stop the the bad guy who wasn't really who's just sort of like the ps bad guy you know there's just so much crossover <laughs> in between. that's so fascinating totally <laughs> wow yeah that kind of blows my mind <laughs> i don't know like i wasn't like going in planning on thinking about die hard and it just kept happening as i was watching it as i was trying to think about die hard while watching it i was mostly thinking about like the genre differences and that like you know die hard is an action movie there are these action sequences and shootouts and stuff but in a hunt for red october there aren't any shootouts basically right. until the very end and it is interesting that the third act does kind of shift a little bit and does become a little bit of an action movie and i think i think this was where some of the silliness not silliness but yeah. it, it I mean, felt like it there was is some like, silliness in that finale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I get the the construction of it, I could feel the movie like straining a little bit to get to where it wanted to be. But I love where it ends up. You know, like so they have this mini sub that we set up way back in Act One, and it's the magic thing that'll get the crew from the Dallas over here onto the Red October. That's convenient, but also that's kind of like what you want in a weird way is like, Oh, the, the two crews are yeah. here and they're going to have to pilot the, the sub together. And I, I don't know. I was just like, it hit me of how kind of actiony cheesy that was, mm. but how much I loved it also. And like that I was endeared enough to all these like characters at that point that I was like, Oh yeah, it's the two captains and Ramius is going to talk. You're right. What's this, Scott Glenn? And they're going to debate about strategies. And like, I don't know. It was just like really fun to have that be the final act. And then also, you know, get a little bit of action shootout stuff. Yeah, you know, what you're talking about, Michael, feels right to me. You know, that that, that didn't feel goofy to me. I mean, it felt, you know, there's the whole, we can talk about the the way they, they smooth over the language uh, barrier. And you kind of have to like use your imagination to imagine how, like who's communicating with who and is somebody translating here? Anyway, that aside, I also want to see what you're talking about. The two crews working together. The part that did bump for me was when it went to diehard territory where the, the chef is like a sharpshooter right. uh, <laughs> action hero. You know, is like, I, I, I think it was interesting to have the saboteur be the the chef the guy who's just listening in at the beginning of the movie but then don't make him into like one of the bad guys from die hard make him into mm. a, maybe a radical unhinged guy who's not so like cool and so like good and efficient at what he does that mm. was the one thing i bumped on but but everything else you're talking about i didn't find to be goofy i found to be the natural you know course of events for for this story well, I I feel like the the cook guy is also supposed to be like a KGB agent. Like he's not literally just a oh. cook. He's like because early on in the first scene, he's listening on name in for a reason. Team, I see. Yeah, they yeah. mentioned like how many agents are on the board the ship. Yeah. He's like, oh, they wouldn't even tell me. Mm. So yeah, okay, he, but again, that's one of those things that you probably have to see a couple times to like for sure. Pick right. Up on. It's also one of those things where it's a two hour and 15 minute movie and they spend 45 <laughs> seconds on this character who ends up being right. like the, the bad guy and the, yeah. the surprise bad guy, um, which, you know, is sort of the the movie. Speaking of constraints, it's like the constraint of a movie. If this were a stage play or this were maybe an episode of the West Wing or something, you can kind of get away with the ending just being and then everything was fine. Like they, they everyone communicated the things they had to communicate. And then now, you know, uh, Sean Connery is off on 
in the lake and everything is fine now right but it's like no this is a movie people are going to expect you know especially in a movie with so little action in it people are going to expect something we we need the good guy to get a gun and shoot a bad guy right and our our bad guy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our bad guy is not the bad guy right it's which is so the wires yeah, yeah. <laughs> right um which is but what's it's so windy when he gets shot also like gusts <laughs> of wind like flying up Thought it was part of me. Sorry. Uh, that's fine. Um, I, I forgot what I was saying, but um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, it's just it's just like that. Those are the sort of like expectations of what of a movie like this is. Is at some point that guy's got to get that guy, and the quote unquote bad guy of this movie isn't the bad guy. You know, we we open this movie with we are focused on both the Red October and Jack Ryan and his team, and we are going to sort of make you care about Ramius and make you want him to succeed at the end, which means we now no longer have a bad guy. So we need to kind of insert someone into the third act to give, to give Jack Ryan something. Well, but we do have Stellan Skarsgård. Like, True. Yeah. We do have and I buy him guy. as a bad guy. But you can't shoot him with a gun, like Brian. Sure, said. you can, but blow, you him can up. blow him but, up but... with one torpedo. <laughs> right. I mean, that was well, also goofy, but, it, but I I liked that because it was like yeah. the natural, you know, take the submarine thing to the furthest extent. We're gonna like take his own torpedo back at him. Yeah, I don't know. I liked I liked that it yeah. <laughs> it played into his character design, which is like not. Uh, they don't it's very brief the character design that they put in but it's very clear where it's like you know he was a student of Ramius like he only cares about himself he's headstrong and he doesn't listen to anybody and he died by his own hand ultimately like it's like you know it's not just like a random death but it is like his ego is what got him killed like a little mini morality tale kind of in the bottom bottom corner of this movie they didn't have to do that I thought it was neat yeah and I think the thing that that I've been thinking about since you said it, Michael, um, kind of like all comes together in the third act with like the way it unfolds, which is about this idea that war is often just about miscommunication, right? And like, or no communication. And there's all this distrust, right? And the distrust comes from the lack of communication. And lack of communication feeds the distrust, um, and it, it kind of just gets stuck in this cycle. And so, yeah, there's this sort of cycle that happens where people don't trust each other because they're not communicating. And then because they're not communicating, they don't trust each other. And it just becomes this thing that spirals out of control. And I think it's really interesting that there's this um, parallel being drawn between Jack Ryan and Ramius as being like family men, essentially, right? Like kind of the whole reason Ramius is upset is because his wife died um and he doesn't feel like um i don't know he doesn't feel that familial tie to russia necessarily anymore right like jack ryan tells us early on he's not actually russian he's lithuanian and scottish by way of scotland um <laughs> and, and that like you know his his wife was russian but you know he's maybe not all the way you know actually a part of that sort of family idea but there's this strong like he's just a man who loved somebody like anybody else and the first thing first scene that we see jack ryan in is with his wife and his daughter um and so they are trying to do i think something very conscious in like this thematic 
a little bit of a thematic conversation about like, look at how similar we are. If we could just communicate to each other, we would see that we don't need to be at war potentially. Um, and bringing everybody together in the third act. Well, I think it is kind of, you know, cheesy and pretty convenient. Um, does work because you get them all in the same room and then they're learning like, oh, you do speak English. Oh, you do speak Russian, actually. Um, and I'm sorry about your wife. I already like know about that fact. We can finally start to like just talk as people. Um, and the th that's the thing about that I actually really love about military movies in general is that they're often about people who are following codes and the codes often prevent them from being like people with each other, right? It's like, I'm the commander, you're the subordinate, you have to do what I tell you, because that's what you're ordered to do. Um, and military movies generally sort of attempt to break down those barriers, or at least attempt to show us that all of these people are people. And often they're war puts them in similar situations where it's like, whether you're a five-star general or a foot soldier in a war movie, you might get killed. And whether you're able to speak your mind or not, you might end up sharing the same fate of somebody else on the other side or, you know, whoever. And so I think that's the thing about war movies and military movies is that they're often, they often are about communication. And then choosing submarine movies as a vehicle for a war movie amplifies that where every single problem is just a problem of communication. It's a problem of sonar or as you're talking about the inability to like signal or just contact in any way, somebody else. Um, and, and those, those communication issues are baked into almost every single scene where it's like whether Jack Ryan can speak his mind to, the, you know, brass in the briefing or not is sort of a, what the tension of the scene is, right? Is he going to tell the truth to them or not? Um, all the way down to Ramius can't tell the crew because he doesn't want them to know. So there are these communication obstacles that are being sort of explored from every angle. A couple yeah. thoughts based, based off of the things you were just saying, going back to the, the wife and family stuff, um, mm. random aside, we thought of this movie while talking about Star Trek. I talked about in a Star Trek episode how I was a huge Next Generation fan. That's what I grew up on. And Gates McFadden, which is Dr. Beverly Crusher <laughs> from Next Generation, was in like the first scene of this movie. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, one of my Next Generation cast members is going to be in this movie. I am so in. And then she never appeared again. And I was so sad. She was Jack Ryan's wife. Um, that aside... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Little Michael uh, had the same the same arc. Yeah, was I was yeah. so excited. Um <laughs> that aside, uh I highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen it watch uh Patrick H. Willem's uh video uh on YouTube about the hunt for Red, Octo Red October because it's all about the communication thing and the choice in this movie uh to to do this transition from subtitles or from not understanding into just having everybody speak you know, in their native <laughs> language and accents. Um, and, and the, and the moments those transitions happen are important. And, and one of the main transitions later in the movie is the scene where the two crews come together. And there is a moment of tension where we don't even get subtitles for the Russian crew members. You know, we're mm -hmm. just hearing both sides speak their language and there is no cross communication. And it is a moment of tension of, 
can we trust each other? Why are you here? What's going on? And then as soon as, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin reveals he can understand Russian and likewise for Ramius uh, with English, uh, then we can kind of resume the everybody speaking in their own, you know, voice. Uh, but I think that was a really smart move to to put us in the mindset of that lost in translation, miscommunication tension when they first go on the ship. Um, and, and there's there's really smart choices by John McTiernan of when he brings us back to reality and puts us into that, oh, we actually can't communicate. We are different people with different languages. Uh, that's where bad things happen. Um, and it's only relaxing once we can finally communicate again. Yeah, that's it's a really good point, you know, because the the language switch in this movie is so famous. Um, and I think it's I think it you know works for a few different reasons, one of which, as you're saying, is just thematic. Right. It's like this is a movie about communication and about understanding. And and of course, there's two different kinds of of uh, lack of knowledge or lack of communication, which is one that the audience doesn't know and one that the audience does know uh you know where it's like oh we know we know that we know that but they can't tell each other and there's we have no idea what's going on here we have to wait until the character reveals themselves to to us or to someone else um but then uh but then of course the other thing the the just practical reason for that for that language shift is just look we can hire all you know uh, foreign actors and w with whatever or we can have everyone do try to speak russian poorly or we can have people speak in english but with russian accents poorly and it's like nope we're just going to have them speak Russian. Ideally, they would speak like perfect Russian for the first five minutes of this movie and then switch over. But of course, it's like whatever. Uh, it's a 1990 movie. Um, but uh, but then it's like once we do that switch, then it's the movie just saying, hey, like we get it. We, we get that we are going to have people speaking in English. They're actually speaking in Russian. Just work with us here. Right. And I, like I appreciate that more than movies just trying to just like glossing over that basically um or bad accents it, for the whole movie which well is but i mean i mean right, i mean glossing yeah. over it in the way of just being like just these people are just you know foreign but they speak english and there that's it right um right. and uh, but what it does do that's interesting is the americans are american and everyone all the all the russians are um non-american so whether they are Scottish or, uh, you know, Selen Skarsgård is Swedish, Sam Neill is doing a German accent for some reason. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah, but he's doing some thing. kind of accent. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's something. Um, but so it's sort of a way of saying, like, if you hear American, that's American. If you hear an accent, if you hear something else, then that's Russian. Um, and uh, it's the same thing Last Temptation of Christ did where uh, Christ and his disciples were played by American actors and then all of the Romans were played by British actors, right? And, you know, of course, you can look into, <laughs> you can do a bad faith <laughs> reading of that choice. But again, it's just, it's a bearings thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's an orientation thing of just like, we want you, we want everyone to be able to speak English, but for you as the audience to immediately be able to understand who someone is just based on the way that they sound without everyone having to do bad Russian accents. Yeah. Well, yeah. So why don't we move in to lessons? Because I was thinking about making this my lesson uh, and I'm going to, to just continue the conversation. Uh, 
but that I, it is this really interesting choice as you were outlining Brian of like, yeah, the way they decide to do it, as you're saying, Alex, the moments when they choose to do it, underlining the theme, as you pointed out, Trisha, like it's all working together. And so I think this isn't a lesson that I'm walking away with as like a good or bad, but just a like, huh, that's interesting that this approach works so well for me. And I think obviously it's, I have my kid brain version where it, it didn't know that Sean Connery shouldn't sound that way if he's playing a Soviet Union sub commander. Uh, but even now that I do, I think it is achieving all these things that you guys are talking about. And as I was listening, it reminded me of Hamilton, which is another kind of famous example of having casting people to play certain roles that are not at all what those people were. And again, it's a very pointed casting, right? Like all these old white people that founded the country cast playing by people of color, all this stuff. And I think that there's a way to do it badly. And like you said, Brian, there's plenty of space for there to be bad faith readings of things. But I do think playing around with uh, ways of de-othering people, if it makes sense to the story and the theme, could be really interesting. And I think we can be too rigid about being like realistic, but oftentimes in movies, as we were pointing out, it's still not realistic. Like I love dragon tattoo, but it, I guess it is kind of weird that it's a bunch of like Swedish people walking around speaking American and like, or speaking with accents, speaking English. I don't know. There's like lots of examples of movies, right? Where it's just like, it takes place in another, another country, but they're speaking English, but they just have the accent of the country kind of sometimes. Right. Um, Some of the actors who didn't want to or whatever. Like, but you're <laughs> right. always, there's always one. <laughs> yeah, your mileage will vary dramatically <laughs> with that. And so I think it is just an interesting thing to think about that, that weirdly this is kind of a thing that film seems to be able to achieve occasionally is like being creative with you know if you do it up front early in the movie saying go with us this thing represents that thing that can do a lot of uh, add a lot of meaning to the story you're trying to tell if you're being smart about how you're designing that well, and I was noticing, too, that the movie does take a lot of care to remind us that they're, that, that this is a Russian submarine crew in other ways, right? It's in the soundtrack. It's a really big deal. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you have that scene where they're, like, singing the Russian national anthem. Mm. Um, but and, and, yeah, it's in the soundtrack. But then also I was noticing during the finale when um, – so the crew below decks has started speaking in English to the crew of the Dallas, right? Um, all the officers and all those guys have started speaking to the crew of the Dallas in English. But above decks, the crew of the Red October are watching what's going on on the surface. And we were hearing them in English when they were down below, but now we are hearing them in Russian mm -hmm. because there's a we are being reminded that they, they are Russian, that there's a communication barrier happening because they're not understanding like what they're seeing, basically. Where, um, And it's Tim Curry's doctor character 
It's one of the wildest casting choices of all time. I adore him. I'm like, why did you? Why did you do? He's great. Why? Why not? I I guess so. I mean, he's wonderful. It's just this role is not nearly weird enough for him. Like they just don't let him do enough of himself. It's it's Um, like Ron Perlman is the new Tim Curry, where when he plays a human, you're like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, why are you doing that? Yeah, why are you playing a regular human? Um, But anyway, where he's like, oh, the captain is fighting them, right? And then they like see that and see the other like explosions and things that are happening on the surface. So I thought that was interesting where it's like, we're hearing Russian in the soundtrack. We're also hearing Russian from the crew members at key points to remind us that there is like a a split loyalty here. And again, it goes back to the thematic like communication piece. So it's not like I ever forget that the crew of the red October is supposed to be Russian. um, Despite the fact that they are certainly not Russian in any way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think mechanically, it's basically like once the two crews are together, it goes back to the way it was in the beginning, where when they're speaking Russian, they're actually speaking Russian. But it's just that a lot of them can also speak English. And so we right. can still follow a lot of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Cool. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alex, what's your lesson? My lesson is if you're going to cast Sam Neill in a movie in 1990, you better tee up his next big movie by having him want to go to Montana to dig up dinosaurs (laughs) (laughs) and get his wish. I was I was just so hooked on that. He he mentioned Montana so many times. It's his big like dying breath. Like I would have yeah. liked to see Montana cut to that like brush. <laughs> Badlands. Badlands, Montana. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I just love that. No, my real lesson is kind of going back to what I mentioned before about the heist uh idea, which is we've already mentioned this lesson before in, in many episodes, but there's just that rule of you know, if something's going to go right in in your big plan, in your heist type maneuver, uh, don't tell us about it. Don't let us know what your plan is. And this movie got me. This movie totally got me that way because I did not. I mean, I knew there was going to be I, I, I suspected that that rescue sub was going to come back because it was so pointedly placed at the beginning. But so much of the rest of their plan of how they're going to get away with kind of the faking of the destruction of the ship and getting the crew off. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure that the, the nuclear meltdown was, was a fake. I, I, I thought that was actually happening. There was an escalation. Um, so it, it, it pulled it off on me. It, it, it did that thing where I thought everything was going wrong. And you have that wonderful heisty satisfaction of, Oh man, they're so smart. This is all part of the plan. Um, so yeah, good job. Humphrey October, another great example of, don't tell me what the plan is and then have me along for the ride and and have that wonderful like rush of kind of admiration almost for the characters of just like, wow, you're really good. You really did it. This is actually very closely tied to my lesson, um, which is about, yeah, it's, it's very much the same lesson um, except in like miniature, which the movie does a bunch of times where Ramius has a plan and we don't know what Ramius's plan mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And so in the trench sequence, which I really love, um, oh, yeah. 
they're mm-hmm. going down, right? And he's like, we're going to hit this rock. And the whole crew is telling him he needs to turn the sub and turn the sub. And you hear them like counting down the meters until they're going to like hit the rock. Meanwhile, the torpedo is coming after them. And then he turns it like the last second. And that's a great example of exactly the thing you're talking about. We don't know what the plan is. So the plan can go perfectly. Meanwhile, we think everything is going wrong. And then they do it again in the climactic sequence where he tells Alec, oh, right. he tells Jack Ryan, like, turn to 315 or whatever, the 351, that bearing, um, which is it's turning into the torpedo. Are you crazy? Um, and there's that, like, are they going to turn? And if they are, is Ramius betraying them? What's happening? But the thing is, Ramius has a plan. And so this movie does that in a number of ways. And it is what helps keep the tension like high for most of the movie there's that this off balancedness to the reveal of information where some of the time we know everything that's going to happen and there are people that are throwing up obstacles in the way and it's going badly other times we have no idea what's going to happen we don't know what the plan is there is a plan it goes perfectly right and we've talked about it tons and it's just i think the dynamics of alternating those two tactics throughout the entire second act and into the third act of this movie is what keeps us like leaning forward and the momentum of it all moving yeah and um the movie does it in that in the language switch scene where where yep. you know he where Ramius kills the guy totally it, yes we're like oh you, you know film language tells us this is the ship with all the bad guys and then this guy seems bad. And then Ramius kills me like, oh, this guy's really bad. Like he just killed the guy who seemed bad. Like this guy must be like the baddest of the bad. He's keeping secrets from the other bad guys. Right. And then then the movie slowly peels away the layers of who Ramius is and why he's doing what he's doing and everything. But right from the get go, we're going, I don't know what his plan is, but he's keeping secrets from his own crew. So it's not just like there's Darth Vader and the bad guys or, you know, or there's Alan Rickman and the terrorists or whatever. It's it's no. No, with actually my lesson is about how a simple plot can allow for a really complex character web. So that's actually exactly what we're talking about here. Um, so we talked about, you know, Apocalypse Now, point A to point B, go do a thing, right? So then it's like, great, we always know what the what the objective is here. Or a movie like The Shining is like, it can be all disorienting and weird because we have a very simple kind of thing at the middle here. And the moving parts of Hunt for Red October are complex, but the bird's eye view macro plot, right, right, is just there's a rogue Soviet submarine. It may be coming to attack the U.S. We don't know. They don't know. There, There's a Russian sub after it. There's an American sub after it. And there's a guy who has an idea, right? So, but it's like everything comes back to that. Like, where is the sub? Where are the subs? trying to get the sub what who is jack ryan you know talking to now to get them to to make a decision about something so then within each of those pockets of characters we have all these different takes on what's going on so you have it in the red october where the different crew members are okay i'm on your side or i'm totally not on your side or i'm really conflicted uh, you know and then you have the people surrounding jack ryan you have the people in the dallas who all have different w- thoughts about what they're doing but even if you even if at some point you're like i don't really know what this scene means or what this has to do with that you're always just going but i know that there's a there's a sub going that way and there's subs after it. And like something bad is going to happen if something 
doesn't stop that bad thing from happening. Either this sub is going to attack or this sub is not going to attack, but is going to be attacked. Right. So it's like, but it just allows so this huge character web in this movie. Um, but everything is based on just how do these, how does this character in this pocket of characters feel about this one simple macro thing that's happening on the surface? Um, uh, <laughs> that was, happens. Wow. The, the, the end. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, uh, so I just thought it was really cool to, to notice. I was like, I, why do I get so disoriented during political thrillers? And it's because I don't even know what the main thing is a lot of the time, right? It's like, oh, mm -hmm. there's a thing that we found and it means that there's a code that the person has to get, but the the other person's trying to get, I'm like, I don't know who you are or what's happening. <laughs> and this movie, I don't feel disoriented because of how how clear the the sort of bird's eye view macro plot is. Well, and some of, and you know, often the best war movies are doing this exact same thing. The thing about a war movie is that you have to have a ton of characters because it's a war, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to have like a ton of hierarchy and foot soldiers, people everywhere, um, and often people on both sides too, potentially. But the best war movies group characters up and they make, at least within missions or objectives, very simplified. So we understand like, okay. The inglorious bastards are here to kill Nazis, and then here's what they're going to do in this scene. Or, you know, one of the greatest war movies ever, Saving Private Ryan. The macro plot, so simple. Mm -hmm. You guys, go get Private Ryan. He's yep. over there. You got to save his life, right? And there are a ton of characters. It's exactly what you're talking about. Like, there could be, you know, there are 30, 50 characters, who knows, who have lines in, in some of these war movies, but when the like bird's eye view of it is really simplified, we're able to track everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminded me just, I've been thinking more about the containment thing and just again, that submarines might be the best containment they device are. ever mm -hmm. because it's like, cause it's, yeah, like spaceships, like we were talking about, you can't go outside, outside bad, like breaches bad, but you Planes can Planes are pretty good. That's true. Planes. Planes are good kind of for a similar reason because yeah. like, planes have gravity and there's like an up you can go and there's a down you can go but i think this is where submarines are even more contained because like there's kind of an up but there's a ceiling to the up which is true for planes too there's a ceiling to the ground which is true for planes uh ceiling for the ground <laughs> yeah. floor for the ground there it is. but there, there's also like walls like at some point yeah. if you're going to the east coast you're gonna hit the coast like you're gonna run out of places to go right so you're like bounded in all these directions well, and the thing that I love, love, love about submarine <laughs> movies, which Red October does not do, is that submarines can only go down so far before they start to literally get crushed from the pressure. Mm. And a mm. lot of submarine movies mess with that, where it's like, we can't go any further or like the bolts start shooting off the wall because our submarine's mm. literally being crushed because we're down so far. And uh, Red October doesn't have a chance to to get down into that. But yeah, it... it plays into all of that like it's not just that space is hostile but basically basically the same right basically uniform um it's just space it's like no there's i i have to maintain a very specific sort of yeah altitude within the water and i want to add that uh air force one despite not being a jack ryan movie feels like 
the Jack Ryanist of Jack Ryan movies, right? It's Harrison Ford. Oh yeah, he's president, obviously, but it's Harrison Ford on a plane doing his Harrison Ford thing. Same era. It just feels like it. It absolutely fits in that like '90s thriller dad movie kind of genre. And that movie I watched a lot. Yeah, man, the '90s were great for dad movies. <laughs> Michael's kind of like deduction about like why subs are the most awesomest contained thing but, like <laughs> kind of like a thing. like a dorm <laughs> like a dorm room like late night like a stoner talk like oh, are yeah, airplanes yeah, yeah. the most like contained because like the ground and the ceiling <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the ground ceiling you know it's like there's the, the top has a ceiling but also the ground is a ceiling if you think about it because you can't go down more than the ground it's the ground that's why it's called the ground and the oh, ocean you like you're gonna hit a pizza? wall eventually <laughs> yeah man even because like the thing with planes though is like you can like lose your windows on planes but you still got air and a submarine you don't even have air it's the worst of all possible things also yeah. there's sharks if you step outside there's sharks <laughs> yep. it's cold cold sharks cold sharks. <laughs> what have you guys been watching recently <laughs> another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. <laughs> Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, um, I went to a screening of the 1927 film Sunrise. Um, do you love Sunrise, Trisha? I do love Sunrise. Yes, of course yes. she does. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's directed by F.W. Murnau, who also famously did uh, Nosferatu. Um, but I got to see it with a live orchestra performing an original score that the that the head of the orchestra had uh, had written, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, the the plot of this movie is awesome, uh, which is a, a man and his wife, who that's their character names, uh, are married in this quiet lakeside town. And then the man gets involved with a this is her character name, a woman from the city. Um, and then the woman from the city suggests that maybe they'd be happier if his wife had a, drowned in an accident, in a, you know, in a boating accident. And he, of course, is not sure about it, but then he goes along with it. And then he suggests to his wife they take the boat into town for a night out. And if you're like, you're spoiling a lot of this movie. No, this is the first 25 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and then the boat ride happens and then I'll, I'll, I'll let it go from there. Uh, but yeah, it's just like this movie rocks and it's it's so entertaining and fun and it's interesting to see what things 95 years later feel like yeah this movie feels like it could have been done today in terms of structure and what things feel wildly different in terms of like oh they put that there like i just said everything i just said sounds like the first two acts of a movie right not the first act of a movie um but then where does it go from there that's kind of what makes it fun and it's the movie that John Ford watched over and over again when he was developing his style. And then Spielberg, Scorsese and Kurosawa and like every major filmmaker cites John Ford as their biggest influence. So Sunrise is kind of the movie that launched a thousand movies basically because mm. it, mm. Uh, it was just so, so inspiring. And um, if you've seen <clears throat> Nosferatu, Nosferatu feels like a 
1922 movie. It feels like this thing from another era. But Sunrise, despite being a silent film with silent film acting and everything like that, it feels like a totally watchable, modern, 95-minute kind of romantic drama thriller or whatever whatever you want to call it based on yeah. the description I gave. But yeah, it's great. Nice. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Super How did wild. you guys not have to watch that in film school? Mm. I wish they like, made me watch it in film school. That never came. Typically, out. like a standard viewing. We've watched others of his, but yeah, I don't think I've seen that one. It is wild that yeah, ninety-five years ago yeah. is when movies came out, and the number of movies that are going to be a hundred years old is only going to keep going up. You guys. Yeah, I think Nosferatu <laughs> yeah. turns hundred this month. Actually, yeah. Of, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. Uh, well, Alex, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched the first three episodes of Severance, the Apple TV uh, Plus series. Uh, I know a lot of our patron supporters were talking about it on, on the Discord. And so I, I thought, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to give it a chance. I, you know, a lot of Apple TV Plus shows have been hit or miss for me. But man, this show, it got me. Like the, it, Ben Stiller directed the, the episode so far. Um, and you know, the first episode, was, it was a little bit of, is this going to be style over substance? Is a lot of, you know, long shots and really, you know, really cool production design, but a lot of lingering on the production design. But it's got a great hook. And once the story gets going, there's some great just like performances. It's a weird kind of alternate universe that it takes place in. And it, it it's a good time. So I would recommend Severance. It's worth checking out. A lot of interesting thematic ideas a lot of really cool production design and cinematography and and just great actors uh having fun um you know it's got it's got a great cast it's got uh amongst uh you know adam scott and uh, john turturro christopher walken makes an appearance uh patricia arquette is great uh so yeah definitely check it out interesting cool okay yeah that's good to know nice awesome all right trisha what have you been watching so I'm super late to this party, but I've been watching Only Murders in the Building, and it's really great, and I really love it. I'm like two episodes from the end. Um, so if you somehow don't know what it is, it is a show with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, and a lot of other people, for the record, that like Nathan Lane is in it, Tina Fey is in it in like small parts. Like it's it's really uh it feels like somebody made a little show just for me or like sort of true crime podcast fans if you like true crime podcasts because uh the three central characters live in the same apartment building in new york uh there is a murder in their building and then they are all true crime podcast fans so they decide to make a podcast about the murder in their building um and so they're investigating it while they're producing a podcast about it and uh, it's kind of just about their relationships and, and everything. And um, it's really funny. It's like got a great, you know, just sort of mystery whodunit engine where it's clear that someone in the building did it and like what's going to happen. Um, and like I said, I haven't finished it, but I really am enjoying it. So I'm watching a TV show that's new and people <laughs> have watched it recently. Good so job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm really, really liking it. Um, and I also have the Discord to thank for that because they told me what it was all about and I got super interested. So That does, yeah, sound very much up your alley. So if any TV show is going to do it, that's great. <laughs> well, I will watch almost anything that Steve Martin and Martin Short do, to be honest. Like, 
And then the fact that they just like, they have Selena Gomez as like, they're sort of like third part of that investigative team is really fun. Yeah. Very nice. Cool. Michael. So I, to continue my Kristen Bellathon, because last week I talked about the woman in the house across the street from the mirror, whatever it's called. Uh, I started watching The Good Place. Oh, uh, And I almost finished that. Uh, and I knew very little about it other than it was like afterlife something something. And so, it's yeah, it's interesting that it's like about Kristen Bell's character wakes up in the afterlife in The Good Place but she realizes she's not supposed to be there. And that's kind of like the premise is like trying to keep the secret or else she'll go to the bad place. And so I enjoyed like that part of the show uh, a lot. The cast is really funny. Ted Danson, always, always welcome. Um, We're talking about Saving Private Ryan recently. I've been wanting to watch it because I'm like, Ted Danson's in Saving Private Ryan for like two minutes. Like, I should go watch that again. (laughs) He's so good. That's the reason you want to watch. Or just go watch Cheers. (laughs) I mean, right. I've been wanting to watch Cheers also, but like not all of it. It's a long thing. Anyway. Curb Enthusiasm, uh, he's also in. mm, Interesting. He's so good. And he's great in this. Uh, But it's really fascinating to watch the show evolve its format because it starts very much in a I am a TV show and I have created an engine and familiar in all these ways and I won't spoil anything um, other than to say that it evolves dramatically and it's in really interesting ways so it was just really interesting to see it formally uh, yeah in conversation with things and, and change while also just being a, a funny sitcom all the time uh, so yeah the good place good show have a box of tissues nearby when you finish it i would recommend okay it really moved me in unexpected ways when i finished the whole thing they like final two few episodes, episodes left so. that that's when you need them those okay. last couple episodes yeah excellent great <sighs> emotional preparedness okay i just want to watch the end of cheers like i just want to watch like the last no, scene of cheers no, no, over no. and over again but it's such a good end i mean it is but like also watch the beginning in the first well, few okay. seasons yeah, but then I'm gonna want to watch Frasier, and then it's gonna no, be no. You could thing. avoid you could avoid Frasier if you try. <laughs> I loved Frasier. I okay. like Frasier more than Cheers. Young Michael had a watched what his mom watched, and we watched The Hunt for Red October and Cheers and Frasier. This has anyway. been our conversation <laughs> about The Hunt for Red October. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayados. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in our baffles, which is a word they say a lot in this movie. <laughs> Hard to starboard. <laughs> 20 degree down plane. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Do Bye.